I mean, I can I can see Russia just supporting a revolution in the U.S. just to <laughs> just to destabilize just for, them. Just for the lulls, for the trolls, yeah. lulls. Well, I mean, they wanna they wanna be power. You know, Russia wants to take down the U.S. Yeah. They wanna be powerful. No, I know again. what you mean. It's not for any like ideological reasons or anything. It's not like Putin is a communist. Like, it's kind of like opposite. how the USA supported Rojava because we it served yeah. our interest at the time, and then as soon as it stopped serving our interest, they pulled out. So yeah. Uh, yeah, no, I know what you mean. Realpolitik. But uh, they'd have to, we'd have to get a, see, the thing is, we'd have to get a really legitimate, for anybody to help us, we'd have to get a very huge step forward. You know, we would have to, like, conquer mm. land. You know, there's there's no there's no way that they, I mean, maybe, they, I don't know, maybe they would give us, let us borrow a few of their bot farms or something <laughs> surreptitiously, but, yeah. which is, which is not nothing. Yeah, P- Putin. If you're watching this, you know, get in touch. <laughs> That's yeah, a devil's bargain. Uh, could you imagine? Uh, it's actually kind of scary to think about that. There's no yeah. way that ends well. There's no way that ends well. No. Uh, uh, China. Someone asked, "Wouldn't China help?" Uh, no, China. I don't think so. I think the best way for me to to look at China and to think about China is not as socialism with Chinese characteristics, whatever that really even means anymore but as um pragmatic naturalists is they they Mm. do what works uh ultimately to serve the interests of the chinese nation and there's no like internationalism or or proletarian solidarity or any oh hell no not with vietnam they 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 commit financial and maritime warfare against vietnam they invaded vietnam in 1979 they uh continuously try to take islands away from Vietnam and claim uh, maritime waters from Vietnam. They try to com- they wage financial warfare here. They're trying to buy up land in Vietnam. I mean, they do not treat Vietnam in any kind of comradely manner. And I, that's my biggest question for any communist who, like... And, and by the way, that doesn't mean that I want America to be imperializing China. You know what I'm saying? Like, that doesn't justify American imperialism of China or anything like that. And it doesn't mean that China's, like doesn't have its own merits or whatever but my biggest question for any communist who like unquestioningly and unwaveringly supports china is like how do you explain the way that they treat vietnam yeah because i don't see any there's no potential justification for that at all it's it's like you said it's a very real politic way of uh of looking at the the world the way that they treat vietnam i mean they they side with with whoever gives them an advantage over their their rivals mostly india uh yeah. india and the u.s but uh, i think mostly india they don't really care that much about the u.s like they're happy to work with the u.s uh like they really don't i think they see the u.s mostly as a market at this point you know what i mean like yeah. that's what it feels like they just don't want they want to be antagonistic against us but not so antagonistic that we stop being a market mm-hmm. and i think that's pretty much it and otherwise they just want to keep kind of a, a, a tense status quo yeah i mean they that's they, what it feels like china values stability above all else i mean i feel yeah. like they they don't want to support revolutions because revolutions bring instability and that's not yeah, good for right. the markets well plus they i mean i'm not an expert on this so but i have read that um they no longer teach about like the uh factory strikes in china during the revolution like that's like been mm. stricken from the history textbooks because they don't want to encourage the proletariat in china to rise up and have strikes so yeah I don't know. I mean, I'm not an. Ex- I don't like to overstate, you know, my expertise on China. Even though I live right next, like people ask Luna and I questions about China all the time because mm-hmm. we live in Vietnam and we're right next to China. 
but beyond the relationship between Vietnam and China, I don't know a lot about China, and I know there's a lot of misinformation about China. Yeah. Um, but you know, I I've talked to Chinese much people about, like, and Finland. Like I, yeah. I live next to Finland, but I don't really. Know I know that nothing much about, about Canada whatsoever. Yeah. Um, I know they they they're really racist against indigenous people. Yeah, I know that now, thanks to a, a <laughs> few good videos I've watched and a few indigenous people I've talked to. But um, yeah, yeah, but I don't know anything about like their government or their history. I mean, I know a little bit, but not a yeah. lot for sure. So I certainly don't know much about. I don't trust a lot of what I hear about China from both sides. You know, mm-hmm. like that's the thing. Like it, it's the same thing with the Soviet Union. Like, how the hell am I supposed to be able to pick apart? I'm not a, like I don't have. It would take me years, and I would have to have like a formal education in historiography to come close to knowing what the fuck happened during World War II with the Soviet <laughs> yeah. Union. Because like you had very sophisticated propaganda machines from Nazis, the you know capitalist countries, and from the Soviet Union, and they're all lying about everything. Yeah. Like, how are you supposed to go through and parse out what was true and what wasn't? I mean, that's a. It, it seems like a huge undertaking, and it doesn't yeah. seem like it really has a lot of benefit. Like, I don't really see what the no. point is of arguing about that over and over again for decades yeah, away the left. That, that's something that one of the big problems that I have with a lot of Marxist-Leninists is um, they politicize history a lot and they focus on yeah. history a lot. And it's they talk a lot about, you know, we need to follow the teachings of Marx and Lenin and Stalin and Mao and, and, and all these things. And you can't do this because that's not how the Soviet Union did it and that kind yeah. of thing. And, it gets quite LARPy, uh, too. Anarchists do it, too, by the way. Anarchists do it because, like, I've got people that have told me that, like, oh, you can't trust Luna. She's going to murder you in your sleep. You know, Marxist (laughs) Lunatists always, always murder anarchists in their sleep. And I'm like, come the fuck on. Like, you know, like, that's just so outlandish. It's, like, silly. It's childish. How long have you been together now? Like, since 2016, like, the end of 2016. So it's, like, I think she would have done it by now. No, At no, least, she's... if nothing else, because I snore pretty badly. <laughs> so you'd think that she would have, you know, yeah. done done the deed. Um, but no, I mean, it's just silly. It's like I don't think that. Eh, eh, I could go on, but yeah, anarchists do the same thing. They politicize history as well. Yeah, and they don't try to engage with it productively. Sometimes it can be very much like a sports team. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? That's that's what a lot of leftist infighting feels like, and it's the most annoying kind of leftist infighting. Is when people start getting into tit for tats about like things that happened over a hundred years ago in countries that are completely different. Oh, did you come to kill me in my sleep? <laughs> You're dead. So much for the tolerant Marxist-Leninists. <laughs> um, little theater for you there, folks. I'm I'm fine. Everything's fine. Oh, you fine. didn't actually die. I did not actually die. I was convinced. Unless you all died with she me. was coming. To take you out. <laughs> She could have killed me, though. You, know, you see what I'm saying? It's true. She just had the perfect opportunity. Yeah. I mean, Vietnam is a matriarchal society. Your relationship <laughs> is an unjustified hierarchy where she, she, is, uh, she is in control. She has the power in your relationship. There are, there are matriarchal aspects of, of Vietnamese society. But I do think that uh, if she murdered me during a live stream, she actually probably would have gone to jail. So it's not that matriarchal, but well, we could test that theory, I guess, but I don't feel like it yet. Okay. Social experiment, um, YouTube prank. Yeah. Gone wrong. <laughs> I'll fake my own death to see if Luna goes to jail. Um, <laughs> so I don't know. Uh, yeah, but, but, but just back to the whole idea about China, it's just, um, uh, 
same thing, like politicizing, like, and I, the worst is talking about North Korea because I happen to know quite a lot about North Korea from the perspective that um, I've studied Korean for like years. I've talked mm-hmm. to North Koreans in English and in Korean. I've talked to people who are are advisors for the CIA about North Korea. And the one th- the one conclusion I've drawn about North Korea is that nobody really knows much about what's happening in North Korea. Absolutely. Yeah. The experts the experts don't know much. They could no. they have to piece stuff together from like scraps of information they have. The North Korea has a very sophisticated they're not crazy and they're not stupid, you know. Um they 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 know exactly what they're doing when they put out like wacky uh briefs and like news reports and stuff like that, you know, where the North Koreans will, will like like issue videos of of Kim Il Jung pointing at stuff and everything. Like they put little messages into those photos and those videos like they 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 tailor the messages very carefully for whatever audience is going to be receiving it mm-hmm. and they manipulate information and so does the USA and so does the international press like there's so much manipulated information going on out there anybody who thinks that they have a 100% solid idea of what's going on in North Korea automatically I'm not going to trust yeah. anything that they say because nobody knows nobody really knows um, yeah, I've done, you know, there are some uh, things that we know, but for the yeah. most part, like as far as like how things, what's life like in North Korea on a day-to-day basis for an average typical North Korean, I've talked to people who have spent months there for working for NGOs or whatever, mm-hmm. you know, and then, and then they, you know, but who knows because they were, they, you know, the way they described it, it just felt like a little rural farming community. But of course they had handlers that went with them and brought them to a specific region. You know what I'm saying? So it's like yeah. very carefully crafted uh, information being released um, from all sides. So it really annoys I, me I, um, to talk about that. I tried to do some research into into North Korea, and it was, uh, it was I mean, difficult. <laughs> I mean, you yeah. find a lot of contradicting information. Um, you from know, both you sides. Find, yeah. Um, it's, so. a, it's obnoxious. <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah. you'll read a North Korea article that contradicts another North Korea article, and then you'll read a CIA mm-hmm. Uh, propaganda that contradicts other, you know, it's like there's there the the narrative is shifting constantly to like suit whatever, yeah, is going on at the moment, you know, because sometimes the North Koreans will be talking about how powerful their army is, and then sometimes they'll talk about how they're being aggressive, you know, it's like the it it's 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 very obnoxious because, um, but the specifically because people on both sides in the left will like politicize it and i find it very disrespectful to the north korean people you know like Mm. like my biggest priority really at the end of the day is that the north korean people the workers of north korea um have the best lives that they can have and if we're just trying to use north korea to suit our narratives whether it's the capitalists doing it in the press whether it's me doing it as an anarchist to try to undermine you know authoritarian communism or whatever um it's disrespectful. It's not, it, you know, it, there are, these are actual human beings and mm-hmm. we can't lose sight of the fact that there are people who actually live in that country. It's very similar to when I talk about Hong Kong. Like my big take on the Hong Kong protests is this. I don't know, like I'm, I don't live in Hong Kong. I've traveled there, but I don't know much about it. I have comrades who live in Hong Kong who are anarchists and who are communists and who are trying to leverage the unrest there to build you know, a worker-owned means of production sort of society, you know, to build a real communist or anarchist revolution. So I do know mm-hmm. that there are people in those protests who are actual leftists and communists. I also know that there are a lot of, you know, imperialist, bootlicking liberals 
that can't be trusted that are, you know, in, in, in that movement. And all I ever say is this. It's that no matter what happens, I support the working people of Hong Kong. You know, mm-hmm. like if the Chinese government wants to roll in tanks and overthrow capitalism and build communism in Hong Kong, you know, I, I say that kind of glibly, but, you know, if, <laughs> if China really wanted to build communism in Hong Kong, I would support them. Like, like real non-authoritarian, non-realpolitik, <laughs> if they wanted to build real communism there, I would mm-hmm. support them. That's not what they're doing, though. You know, they're, they're supporting the status quo, which is a very capitalistic, liberal uh, power structure. You know, um, I don't want Hong Kong to be just given as like a vassal state to the UK or America or something like that, like they were. Um, you know, I want I, I, I one thing I know is that in Hong Kong, the working class has a really shitty deal. I've been inside of those buildings that have the, you know, the the gates the that separate like the, you know, people basically live in these like coffins and they're separated by like chain link. You know, I've been in those buildings. And it's awful. And there's a lot of people, you know, there's a lot of people that live there, unnecessarily so. So all I want is for them to, like, have better lives. Um, and I don't pretend to be an expert about it. I don't pretend to know more than I do about it. All I can, And I can't influence. That's the other thing, Azure, is I can't influence what happens there at all. You know what I mean? Like, that's the other thing is there's, there's – it's so fucking annoying to me how people are like, you know, you have to stand up against North Korea and China and, and, and blah, blah, blah. It's like, well, what am I actually supposed to do about it? All I can really Start do is like art show in North Korea. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, I support the people of these countries against imperialism and against any form of authoritarianism. And what else am I supposed to do beyond that? And how else am I supposed to? I, I don't know. It's just very strange to me. Like, people will say, like, do you yeah. support North Korea? It's like, what does that mean? How do I support North Korea? How am I supposed to support North Korea? Like, what am I supposed to do? Besides say, I don't want America. I want America to get the fuck off of that peninsula. You know, I don't want the USA to have any interventionism there, and I don't want China to either. And I want the people of Korea to like work it out, and you know, that's what I want. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Like, I, I, I don't know. I guess I get exasperated because there's this expectation <laughs> that I'm supposed to go and like liberate the people of Hong Kong or China or North Korea. Like, what the fuck am mm. I supposed to do about it? I'm much more concerned with the USA, where I actually have some degree of, you know, impact that I can have in the USA. You know. Mm. I don't know. Yeah. Do you know what I'm saying? I don't know. Sorry, I just ranted for a long time. That's okay. (laughs) I mean, sometimes I get told, like, you know, Swedish social democracy is still capitalism, right? And I'm like, yeah, I know. Uh, (laughs) But it's like, it's as if, like, by living here, somehow I've, like, I, like, support the social democratic system or something. That I'm, like, a social democrat for living here and not, I don't know, starting a violent revolution uh out of my backyard um, yeah what do you but, uh, i mean do you what do you like uh how how would you like to see sweden go like like do you hope that there will be a revolution do you expect it to are you a are you reforming like like how do you see sweden developing and how would you like for it to develop and how do you think it could develop in the way that you want it to does that make sense Kind yeah, of I mean, it's a it's a difficult question to answer because I don't know. Like a lot of Swedish people are xenophobic and conservative in a lot of ways, mm-hmm. and so building any kind of popular socialist movement, I think, would be 
difficult, uh, at least right now. Yeah. Um, I think building dual power structures is is a good idea for something that leftists can do. Um, but I, I I don't think reform is gonna is gonna bring about socialism. I don't think we can vote socialism, uh, like vote away capitalism. I don't think that's ever gonna happen. Yeah. Um, nor do I really think that a violent revolution could ever re- or I don't, I don't want to say so never you're, but you're a doomer I am a, <laughs> you're a Swedish I'm, doomer <laughs> I'm not a doomer I'm optimistic <laughs> about progress mm-hmm. because the way I see it the, the re- kind of the reason I'm not a doomer is because I I see because I see everything in relation to to class I see every successful strike every time uh prices on food stuff or necessities go down every time wages go up uh the minimum wage goes up or taxes increase on the rich or taxes go down on the poor every time more money and therefore more power is given to the vast majority of people to the proletarian class that to me is progress and that is even if it's a tiny step to me, that's still a step toward communism. Is more and more power in the hands of the proletariat and less and less power in the hands of the bourgeoisie. So I see progress happening all the time and everywhere around me and unions and strikes and protests and demonstrations. All These are all forms of progress and demanding progress and demanding change. And even if I don't see a violent revolution or a democratic reform from capitalism to socialism happening soon i still see progress happening so i'm not a defeatist i'm not a doomer are you getting the the because i feel like in the usa there's more class consciousness now than there has been in my lifetime uh, yeah. is, is that is that happening in sweden or like no. are you having people uh, no not at all no not really are you having any impact from the blm movement there at all no wow there was one well, there's one protest you have a lot of uh, refugees there, right? Would that be your biggest um, minority yeah. population, I guess? Or Yeah. Um, we have people from Ethiopia, Somalia, Eritrea, Libya, former Yugoslavia since the 90s, Arabs, uh, Syrians, Iraqis, uh, a lot of Turkish people, Iranians, mm-hmm. uh, Afghani people. But they're not having any kind of BLM movements no they're i think they're they're not very well organized there's not a lot of solidarity between all the different groups i think they're kind of busy fighting themselves as far as i I understand it um but also yeah like a lot of them are are like first or second generation immigrants i feel like they're not really gonna yeah they're they're probably just trying to survive yeah, you know, I'm sure that's it's, the I don't know if I like went to another country. I feel like I wouldn't try to start a revolution the first thing I do. <laughs> Depends, Maybe. but yeah. yeah. Um, no, I hear you. I hear you. I'm just curious. I was just kind of asking out of my yeah. own curiosity. But so, I do think um, that that's a contradiction within Swedish society right now, and that's something that you know that's gonna get to a boiling point. Like that's that's gonna be a conflict that has to be resolved at some point. And like to me, that's just. Uh, like that's just a protest movement waiting to happen because mm-hmm. Sweden is a very segregated society. The city that I live in is the most segregated, uh, racially segregated city in Europe. And like, wow. Yeah. So like 
we're not going to avoid this conflict. Like, we have a sizable uh, POC population that don't live uh, in equality with the white population, that materially live much worse off lives than the native uh, Swedish population does. And usually they live worse than white immigrants from America, from Britain and that sort of thing, because they bring capital with them. So do you think basically Sweden is just going to be kind of behind the curve and it will maybe have to wait for other countries to, that's kind of what I'm, that's kind of the read I'm getting off of you for some reason. Yeah, I, I think, I feel like we need, we need outside influence, I think. <laughs> <laughs> like we, you need, uh, you need China to come give you some boxes of AKs or something. Well, I, maybe not you... necessarily that, but like <laughs> there needs to be some popular socialist movement. Like France, for instance, they have like the yellow vest and stuff. And if that, yeah, if that goes better. Right, if that has right, more right, influence, right. Uh, then I can see a yellow yellow vest movement happening here as well. Um, but it has. Do you do any Swedish yeah. language uh, content, or do you know of any Swedish language like leftist content? There's very little. It's limited. Do you think it's important? I don't know. Like, do enough people speak English that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, for instance, Luna has, uh, and I even I think there's a Brazilian comrade in the chat, if I'm not mistaken. But Luna's got this massive Brazilian audience now. Yeah. Um, of uh, it's I think she's got a lot of like Indonesians, some Filipinos, um, and there's a few people all over South America. But like she's gotten like twenty thousand subscribers from Brazil or something. Like she got she blew up in Brazil for some reason. Hmm. Um, and I guess I mean I, I I just have to assume that you know they they speak English, and I I guess a lot of people in Sweden speak English. So oh yeah. Yeah, no, everyone um, speaks English here. It's the are they are is there any impact from like BreadTube? The English yeah. aspects of bread tube in Sweden. yeah, I would say so. I think I have a pretty sizable uh, Swedish audience, even though I I, I never made content in, in Swedish before. But I, I still have like I don't know. I think they're like my third biggest audience or something. Yeah. Uh, like everyone, everyone learns English in in primary school, middle school, high school. Um, like everyone speaks English in Sweden because it's. Um, you know, it's it's the lingua franca of, uh, you know, because we have so many different communities and populations. Like, for hundreds of years, we've had, uh, you know, Finnish people who the Finnish language is nowhere near uh, the Nordic languages. It's not a Germanic language; it's a Uralic language. Um, so it's a completely different language family. So we need a lingua franca, uh, lingua franca. Originally, that might have been German, but with you know the industrial revolution and the rise of the Anglosphere, it became English. Uh, and then you know we sided with the west in in the cold war mostly although we were officially neutral so we sided with america we got a lot of american pop culture and music and tv shows and stuff and so it kind of became very natural that everyone who speaks english has the lingua franca so if you're learning a second language in swedish it's always english right Uh, right and um it's it's, such a terrible language to be a lingua franca though such a crap language for (laughs) I just think it's so sad for the world that we have <laughs> fucked you all over with our horrible amalgamation of a disaster yeah. of a language. It's, um, the, it's the language of exceptions. <laughs> exactly. It's like so. It's so shitty. Yeah. If 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 aliens visit us, that might be the thing that's most perplexing. It's like, why do you all speak this language? <laughs> like, what the <laughs> hell's wrong with you? Um, yeah. 
and then we'll have to know. explain to them our colonial past. Uh, so, so, um, do you think, I, I guess maybe what it's going to take is for all of your factory countries to have revolutions and then you're going to be like, what the fuck? Who's going to make know, our, I mean, our, genuinely, uh, I think, I think if, if Sweden and Europe as a whole are, uh, if we lose that cheap labor in the third world, like the third world rises up and they're like, we're not going to work for 12 hours a day for cents on the dollar. Yeah. Like we're going to demand a proper minimum wage eight-hour workdays, uh, paid vacation, and like all these like basic things that, that European nations have, right? Then we're probably going to be forced to take all those factories that we sent overseas and bring them back home. And then yeah. we're going to have proletarianization of the service industry, right? At that That's point, happening in the USA right now in this kind of yeah. terrifying way where China's building a lot of factories in the USA now because it's actually... <laughs> Yeah, cheaper for them to do it. There's a there's there's that really good documentary on Netflix, but also uh, what's it called? The factory. I think it's called the factory. But um, there's also like in yeah. my home state, South Carolina, there's a bunch of textile mills that are opening up because for mm. the Chinese, it's like they could pay Americans so little, it's actually cheaper just to have a factory in the U.S. and then like not have to pay for the import and transportation costs and stuff. Yeah. Um. So yeah, I mean that is happening in the USA, and but it's like in this horrible way, where you know the workers are getting treated shitty in the u.s <laughs> by yeah. the chinese capitalists so it's very interesting but, uh, yeah i think i think it's very difficult to have a socialist revolution in a service-based economy um I, I i like the like the class relations are all mucked up i think it's it's difficult to build class consciousness in a society like that but you're not a third worldist are you no so like what's the but why not i mean like it seems like, from what you're saying, third worldism actually applies to Sweden. It might, you're basically yeah. saying I mean, that it might. Um, I don't like it. To me, third worldism is about how revolution can only happen in the third world. Uh, I think a revolution is possible in the first world. I think it's difficult, uh, and I don't. I, I don't think anyone will disagree that it's going to be more difficult to build a revolution in the first world. Um, yeah. I I have a hard time imagining how. It would happen or what, how it would look like how it would work uh in a way that you know wouldn't be a disaster like i really don't see us like importing ak-47s from russia and like starting a socialist republic like in yeah. stockholm or something well yeah yeah i guess when, when in I, i've never really thought about this before it's kind of connecting neurons i never had connected before but i think that you're right like maybe there are aspects of third worldism that are true in the sense that like maybe some countries like Sweden or Taiwan, maybe, or, you know, maybe mm -hmm. like some of these more wealthy countries that kind of use other countries as their factories kind of exclusively, maybe there's very little chance of revolution there, but I don't think the USA, I don't think that third worldism applies to the USA. I think that there very well could be a, a revolution in the USA because the USA is such a weird country and then i think places i mean you know i don't know about the uk i'm not so familiar with them mm. but certainly south korea i could see having a revolution mm -hmm. you know what i'm saying because south korea has like a very exploited service industry workforce yeah where people are like just miserable they're not working in factories they're working in like offices or they're working in restaurants or whatever but they're still treated like shit and yeah. they have to work way too much and there's like massively high suicide rate you know, even though it's a really "quote unquote" rich country, there's a lot of wealth disparity. So certainly, I could see a communist revolution in South Korea. Maybe you know, Japan I know has a lot of similar situation, you know, similar issues. 
Yeah. Um, Japan so is difficult know, maybe, because... Um, they, I know that they're uh, more on the side of fascism right now, but... Yeah, they, they crack down on unions pretty hard. They really right. don't like unions. Uh, they don't like, you know, workers organizing. Uh, you know, like in America, there's this culture of you don't really talk about... Um, you don't talk about your wages. Yeah. yeah. And, like, you don't want to... I, think I mean, they have that culture in Korea, about. too. It, but yeah. but I think... You know, the weird thing about South Korea, though, is that, like, this is a total aside, but the the most radical workers in South Korea are the old people. Yeah. They're, like, the most unionized, and they're the most, like... They're much more socialistically inclined. It might mm-hmm. be changing now. I don't know. I haven't been in there. I haven't been to South Korea for a long time. But, like, when I was living there, there were a lot of old people that would, like, strike and shit. They were, like, super yeah. radical old people. It's very weird. Because it tends to be inverted, you know, in a lot of countries. But um, yeah, and the and the old people are like some of the most exploited workers too. Like they have old people that are like massively overworked, treated like shit, paid very little. So mm. I think it'd be kind of funny if there was like a geriatric communist revolution in Korea. <laughs> that would be pretty <laughs> funny. Um, that, do you know anything about the like the anarchist um, period in Korea? Because they had like an anarchist. Uh, uh, yeah, they had an an anarchist commune for yeah. uh, years. And I think Jejudo also had an anarchist movement that got just completely brutally crushed by the fascist uh, Park Jong-hee. But mm. no, they yeah, there's a there's a whole school of Korean anarchism. I don't know much about it. A lot of it hasn't been translated yet. One of my pipe dreams is to like work on translating that stuff because uh my Korean right now is not very good, but I have been advanced intermediate speaking mm-hmm. Korean. And would have been able to translate it years ago. I'm, I need to definitely brush up, but um, but no, they do have a pretty robust anarchist uh, history and under the Japanese when the Japanese were colonizing them. They had like an anarchist commune, and they had a lot of anarchist thinkers and leaders and and writers and so, that sort of thing trying mm-hmm. to organize an anarchist overthrowing of of Japan. Um, but I don't. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not as up to speed on that as I wish I were. But I do yeah, know, I, like, I mean, I've got a friend awesome. who's, um, I have a friend whose grandmother was an anarchist in South Korea in, like, the 1930s. Yeah. And there's, like, a picture of her with, like, a black and red, uh, like, like service cap, like the CNT wore, like yeah. a Korean woman. You know, it's kind of weird. She's wearing, like, this, like, um, not really, like, a Korean traditional clothes, but, like, you know, old-fashioned, the kinds of clothes you would see Korean workers wear. And she's got, like, a CNT cap in, like, the 1930s <laughs> in South Korea. It's very, very interesting. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I wish I knew more about that. Yeah, I mean, I would love to read read up about Korean anarchism. I mean, because all like I could find one... are like articles about it, but I can't find the actual yeah. translations of it. You know, that's what I'd really want to find. Yeah. But it's like the one, one revolution I know nothing about. Yeah, well, yeah, and then the the North Korean revolution is actually very interesting too, because the the basically the government in exile and the military in exile. They went to China when Japan conquered them, and they refused to, like, recognize Japan. Mm-hmm. And it was, like, from hanging out in China that they became communists. Yeah. And really, I think it's very fair to say that, like, they were the most legitimate government after Japan left because they were, like, actively resisting and fighting Japan through the whole uh you know, colonization throughout the whole thing. They were like sending operatives down there. They were fighting them. They were really like aggressively trying to get Japan out of there. Whereas the people who ended up forming the South Korean government 
and who ended up forming a lot of the chables or the you know the big corporations in South Korea were collaborationists. You know, like yeah. Park Jung Hee's family and the people who founded L, you know, what became LG and the people who founded Hyundai and everything. They were like collaborating with the Japanese the whole time. So, yeah. I, I do think that early on the North Koreans were much more legit. They had a much more legitimate claim to like being the government of of Korea after World yeah. War Two. But um, it just they had you a know, big. Uh, they had a big purge um, in the party because they, they had three factions. They had the Maoist faction, the Soviet Marxist-Leninist faction, and then they had the nationalist faction. And mm. um, Kim Il-sung was um, like Maoist-inspired, um, mm. but he could get the nationalist on his side uh, and to essentially just like recognize him as the as like the be-all and end-all and like the ultimate supreme leader or whatever word they used right. and so they purged the the mouse and the soviets uh and the nationalists um took over the korean workers party um because they were kind of tired of like china and the soviet union like bossing them around and they wanted like you know independence for korea and that kind of stuff but in doing so they also kind of got rid of all of the all the marxists in the party and they were left over with uh with a lot of like old korean nationalists yeah Right. There's also a lot of awkwardness with uh, a lot of South Korean like mythology of like the heroes for the Japanese colonization period, because a lot of them were communist North Koreans. And like mm. I've watched a movie, I can't remember the name of it, but I watched this movie about this group of operatives that like snuck into Korea during Japanese occupation and they were like going to blow something up or whatever. You know, it was like a heist kind of movie, but with these secret agents. And, but they were like historically they were North Korean communists. <laughs> And they're kind of like heroes, but like the South Koreans couldn't, they downplayed it so much. Like they were wearing uniforms, but there were like no insignia on the uniform. And like, they never mentioned communism and they never, you know what yeah. I mean? It was like, they de-communized it as much as they possibly could in this movie. And it was like <laughs> only afterward when I read the Wikipedia article that I realized that they were communists and that they were like, you know, yeah. ardent followers of Kim Il-sung and that sort of thing. It was kind of funny. Um uh, yeah, because, uh, yeah, the people that were, like, the most badass uh, resistors, not all of them, but, you know, there were obviously people in South Korea that were, uh, or what became South Korea that were, like, you know, good resistors. But um, yeah. it's just kind of funny. I think it's a weird thing. I mean, thing. it's a bit like how, um, I mean, in America, per perhaps even in America, which you can probably attest to, but in Sweden when, when we, you know, because we, we learn about, uh, at least in high school, we learn about U.S. history. Um and we'll learn a bit about the U.S. because I guess they're the, you know, dominant hegemony in the world. And so to them, it makes sense that we learn about how the U.S. works. And right. so one of the things that we learn about is race race uh, relations in the U.S. And we learn about the, mm. uh, the civil rights movement. Um, yeah. But we don't learn of any of the, like, socialist influences in... Oh, yeah. Like we barely like, talked think... about Malcolm X. We didn't talk about the Black Panthers like at all. Yeah. I think in one of my in one of my textbooks, there was a photo of a Black Panther. You know, like yeah. doing the fist, and there was like a little the caption underneath it was like the Black Panthers were a m extremist, you know, violent group. You know, but that was it. There was no discussion yeah. of it. And my teacher told the only time I ever talked about it in class was my teacher said that the Black Panthers were the black version of the KKK. That's what one of my teachers told me. Uh, when I was in like the sixth or the seventh grade or something like that. And so for like years, I hated the Black Panthers because I had just heard one time from one teacher 
like casually throwing off in a conversation in class that the Black Panthers were the black version of the KKK. Yeah. And it's so, yeah, so it's like, um, yeah, that kind of, that history is completely, uh, has been buried from us, which is yeah. what that whole 1617 project is all about, I think, is trying to tell more of those stories. I don't think yeah. that's all it's about, but I, I think that's an element of it. But um, anyway. Like, um, I, I learned about the Black Panthers and, and uh, like, I knew who Malcolm X was and, and MLK and stuff, but I never really knew that they were socialists. Right, like I didn't right, know that right. the Black Panthers were socialists. Hell, I mean, Albert Einstein was a freaking socialist. Uh, yeah. I mean, I you know, I was taught George Orwell. We when we studied 1984 and Animal Farm in school, I was just taught that George Orwell was anti-communist and that these were anti-communist stories. Yeah, which is like absolutely not true. Like George Orwell was a communist, <laughs> yeah. but I was taught 1984 as an anti-communist piece of literature. It's like how how bizarre is that? Nobody ever told me that George Orwell was a communist. I was shocked. Shocked to find out that George Orwell was a communist. Um, yeah. It's funny but, that know, both like, the both the Soviet Union and the United States, uh, or no, sorry, the the United States uh, required everyone to read Animal Farm, and the Soviet Union banned it. Yeah, right, right, exactly, right. It's interesting stuff. I mean, you know, it, it, yeah, Helen Keller was a, was a communist. Uh, yeah. I mean, you know, the list goes on and on. There was there were so many. Uh, of these socialists that like, like just the fact that Albert Einstein's a socialist and nobody knows it. Like when you yeah. watch, like there are so many of these radical skeptics um, <laughs> who like rail and rail about how much they hate communism. And they'll have a picture of Albert Einstein, like behind them as they're doing it. <laughs> yeah. It's like that guy, um, the H bomber guy did a really good video about the guy who's got the skulls all over the place. He has a photo of Albert Einstein on his wall and, mm. and he's like railing about how communism sucks. Like with like a picture of a communist behind it. It's like, yeah. So much buried history. Um, it's it's incredible. I know everyone's complaining about Orwell now. I'm not saying that I'm like the biggest fan of Orwell. Every time I ever talk about Orwell, it's like the chat blows up about how much they hate Orwell. It's like <laughs> he was still a communist, whether you like him or not. Like, and in 1984 was not supposed to be anti-communist literature. So don't take that as my like glowing endorsement of Orwell. I don't even know yeah. anything about Orwell's biography. Uh, Orwell was actually. He was actually uh, an authoritarian, and 1984 was uh, uh, just kind of like his ideal society. Yeah. <laughs> it's like his, his manifesto. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Everyone uh, interpreted it as a critique, but it was actually, uh, you know, because everything's running very smoothly. Yeah. I Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I don't want to split, like... My point is that Orwell was not an anti-communist in 1984. Like, I don't know why specifically Orwell like gets the chat pumping so much every time I talk about him. <laughs> it's so funny. I don't, I don't really get it. I don't. I mean, I think Orwell was a good. I, I, I'll go ahead and say this hot take. I enjoy reading uh, Orwell's writing. Yeah. <laughs> Does yeah, that make like me a shitty communist? I don't know. I like reading 1980. I enjoyed reading 1984 and Animal Farm and Homage to Catalonia. Yeah. Does that make me like a bad person? I feel like I'm, I'm like terrified. Like that's my only fear <laughs> of cancel culture is for like the chat to find out that I enjoy reading Orwell. <laughs> because the, and it's every channel I've ever discussed Orwell on. The chat always gets like inflamed about or- when I mention Orwell. It's so mm. funny. Um, I mean, I get like I, I can talk about Stalin like all day long day. and the chat's like quiet. Yeah. You know, or like Kim Jong-un, they're, they're, nobody cares. But then if I mention Orwell, like the chat just goes like bonkers every time. It's... <laughs> yeah. I mean, I get uh, canceled like every other day over stuff that I say because 
I refuse to be put in boxes. So the Marxists because you're don't a toxic. Like Like you're Marxists don't like me because Swedish. I'm not Marxist enough, and anarchists don't like me because I, I don't call myself an anarchist. You see, this is the leftist unity we have because I have the same problem. I get called a tanky yeah. by anarchists, and I get called a radlib by uh, Marxist Leninists. So we're we're just here stuck in the we're the we're the enlightened center of the left, Azure. Yeah, you and me. Well, that's that's. <laughs> I was actually I was gonna name this video, um, um, anarcho Marxism. Um, leftist uh, uh, syncretic ideology. Yeah, because I feel like yeah. that's that's us. I'm I want to write a book on syncretism and how mm-hmm. it's different than eclecticism. Because like I think there's a there's a binary kind of or I don't know a duality between syncreticism and eclecticism. Because like something that Marx talked about a lot was like eclecticism sucks because eclecticism is when you form it's like it's like a lack of perspective a lack of viewpoint so it's like mm-hmm. basically it's the whole thing where you start with a conclusion and you're working your way backwards from there so it's like i don't like communism so i'm going to go google a bunch of shit about how communism is bad and find a bunch of evidence to back up my claim and then write something about how communism is bad you know what i mean like instead of looking at the evidence first and then drawing your conclusions from that so that's like yeah. a that's like the opposite i think of syncreticism which is where it's like I don't I don't have any kind of perspective, and I'm gonna just look at all these different sources of information, uh, you know, kind of like agnostically to build a case for whatever I I like a priori I agree with. And mm-hmm. then there's syncretism, which is like the kind of the complete inversion of that, where it's like I'm going to look at all the evidence and all the data from all the sources that I possibly can, and look at all the different frameworks, and try to base my analysis and my decision making on you know, all of these multiple different sources of information. Um, mm. it, it's like on the surface in terms of the phenomena of it, it can look very similar because yeah. you're grasping from all these different sources of information. But then if you look at the essence of it, they're completely different. And I think mm. that's a really, really interesting uh, dichotomy that doesn't really get discussed as much as I think it should. And that's, I, I really want to write a book on that, but I just have no fucking <laughs> time. And I couldn't do oh, a yeah. video on it because it's like too big I don't think mm. I could do. It would take me like hours and hours to put a, to make a video out of it. So, and I don't know how you can make it. Yeah. You know, some ideas like you can't make it into a video because it's just like no one's gonna want to watch it. <laughs> you know, like <laughs> there's just no way that you could convince yeah. somebody to spend like 14 hours listening to you ramble about something. But maybe you can make it a book and mm. people. I would mean, read. I, I wanted to make a video about. Or t- I tried to make a video about uh, decentralization. Um, and the the problems that I perceive with with decentralization, especially in regards to how decentralization has worked in Sweden, where literally it's just the simplest form of decentralization, where it's just the government has a bunch of powers, and then it says uh, all of these powers now belong to the municipalities, and then just lets lets them all run wild. Um, it's just like very little oversight and kind of like haphazardly done without a lot of thought on how to do it properly. Yeah. But, yeah. Um, you know, I, I tried to make a video on that, and, and I wrote a script, and it was like, I don't know, 10 pages long or something. And I was like, okay, I'll try to shorten this down, try to focus, refocus the point and all that. And it's like, okay, it's seven pages long. And then I was like, okay, fuck this. I'm going to write a new script. Write a new <laughs> script. Uh, but it was like every time I try to talk about decentralization, it always just turns into a me rambling about how much I hate the Swedish education system. <laughs> Sounds like you have some issues you need to work through. Like it sounds like you need some kind of like 
Marxist therapy sessions or something. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, education's a good, I I think of like, of all the systems that might have a need to be centralized, education's pretty up there. Like, I I feel Mm -hmm. like education does benefit from having like, you know, for one thing. Well, okay. The other thing too, though, let's, let's, I'm very curious what you think about this. Mm -hmm. I'm kind of starting, this is like a new thing I'm starting to come around on is like, I'm coming into this kind of like education abolitionism. I'm just starting to think about this more because it's okay. almost like, or maybe maybe like a school abolitionist or something, or like the the way that schools are structured just seems unproductive. Like obviously we need education, we need people to learn how to do shit and learn about shit, obviously. But like mm. the way we're structuring it and the way people learn things, it just doesn't feel good. Yeah. Um, you know what I mean? No, I, mean, I don't know exactly what the solution uh, is yet. But. When you study to become a teacher... Um, oh, um, someone just posted in chat. Pedagogy of the Oppressed. It's a great book. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, should look, mm-hmm. you should look that up, actually. I'll you check it out. give that a read. Um, I will. It's a very that good book. Right and it own. relates to a lot of what we're talking about. Um, but w- uh, basically, the first thing that I learned when I went to university uh, to study to become a teacher is... Um, the way that we do teaching right now is barbaric. Oh, it's by a Brazilian. So uh, shout yeah, out to the yeah, Brazilians. So. It's a Brazilian book. Yeah, by Pablo something, right? Paulo Freire. Pa- I'm sure yeah. I fucked that up, but I tried. <laughs> Freire. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Freire. Good, great, book. great book. Great um, book. And, uh, you know, like we learned about how classical education, what we call uh, behaviorism, uh, the mm-hmm. behaviorist style of pedagogy, which is based on um, Pavlovian conditioning, uh, classical Pavlovian conditioning, where you have uh, an authoritarian figure in a classroom, which is the teacher, who has a curriculum. Um, and when students do something good, when they you know get good test scores or whatever, uh, you reward them. And when they do something bad, like arrive late, you punish them. Ah, yes. And then yes. through classical Did we talk about this before? Maybe. I feel like we've talked about this a little bit before. Yeah, because it's like, it really reminds me of the Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance, which is a book that I read Mm, uh, quite some time ago. But yeah, he he talks about that similar kind of stuff. It's like all about Mm. conditioning and and punishing. And it's like, like, I think the most most important takeaway for that book is that like, you start with like uh, 100 and you can only go down from there. Mm -hmm. Like that's that's the way classes are structured um, currently, is that you start with a perfect grade and you can only fuck up and fail and like your your grade can only be reduced. It's just yeah. like this really oppressive way of thinking about education. It's the like okay, it's so the first day of class, it. you have a 100. Yeah. How much are you going to fuck this up, you know? <laughs> it's like The way Sweden does it is kind of the opposite. That, oh, really? Yeah, it's like um in a many like most of the time getting something wrong won't reduce your grade. See, that's, but, yeah, that's, a, yeah. That, yeah, that's exactly, that's a but good point. But when you learn something, when you demonstrate, because like how, how, how grading works, which I think is a very good system, it, it could be improved, but I think it's a very good system, is, um, it's like there are, for every class, right, because high school is structured kind of like university, is where you have, mm-hmm. you know, you have individual classes, right, that you take. And for every class, there is a, uh, there's a, um, it's like a, a, a knowledge requirement, basically what what it translates to. Uh, and what that says is um, this is what a student 
needs to have demonstrated that they know how to do or or like they need to demonstrate this knowledge by the end of the of the class um and I, maybe i should bring up an example actually and maybe that would help um uh let's see engelska that's the first time I've ever heard you actually speak Swedish. <laughs> <laughs> Let's In see. all the hours we've talked to each other. Uh, okay, so uh, I'm I'm gonna be translating it just off the cuff. Um, okay. So the central. Uh, let's see the. Uh, <laughs> the 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 main points of this is English uh, seven, which is the highest course of English in in high school, right? Mm -hmm. And to pass this, there are a whole like there are just, it's like a bullet point list of things that you need to know. Mm -hmm. um, and one of them is, for example, uh, texts of different kinds with different purposes, uh, like uh, analytical texts, scientific texts, uh, and that kind of thing. Um, like that's just something that you need you need to know about, um, and then there's one which is like theoretical and complex subject areas, uh, even with scientific character, uh, with connection to the student's um, education, their choice of um, of of uh, like what classes they've taken and like what program they're doing, societal questions and work life, uh, thoughts, opinions, ideas. Um, um, feelings, um, culture, um, in now and in history, uh, for example, different literary epochs. Mm -hmm. So it's like, it's a very vague thing. It doesn't say you need to include this author, this author, this author. You need to include these specific things. It just says if you're a teacher and you're teaching English 7, you need to include these different things, these different areas, right? Yeah. And essentially yeah. what it is, is at the end of the year, um, you go through each student and everything that they've submitted to you, like all the assignments that you've made, because you make your own assignments, you decide how you wanna, how you wanna test people's knowledge. Uh, and you look through them all and you ask different questions, like does this student understand how to do these different things? Um, let's see, it's, um, um, like one of the grades is like the student can understand, uh, the main contents, um, and, and, and details, and with, uh, some confidence and, un uh, understand meaning in spoken English in a relatively quick tempo, uh, and written English in different genres and of advanced character and, and that kind of thing. And it goes on a bit. Mm -hmm. So it's like this it's like this list of requirements to get a certain grade. So if a student has demonstrated that they know they know how to speak English, they understand English, they understand written English, they understand spoken English, the teacher doesn't really have a choice in what grade to give them. It's like, yeah, this student speaks English. Well they you have right. to get them an A. <laughs> um, right. And like how they demonstrated that and like even if they failed the test that you gave them or whatever. Mm -hmm. It doesn't matter how many times they failed. If at the end of the class, like if at the end of the semester, they demonstrate the ability to do all these requirements, you have to give them an A. 
So why why the hell aren't you all a bunch of socialists? You know, it sounds like you've got some great ideas. <laughs> like what the hell? You, you you're so close to the. It's like you're right on the edge of um, figuring it out. You know. Yeah. Maybe. That's really awesome. That's basically exactly how I would design an education system. I think if I, <laughs> based on what I know right now. Yeah. I mean. Um, yeah, that's awesome. That's a lot less draconian and, and depressing than the way we do it in the USA, for sure. Yeah, um, the the American education system is very strange to me. It's very foreign, very alien in how uh, it works, awful. and it's all the things about like test scores and 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 like getting a one out of a hundred. Like it's very like standardized. It's very centralized. I mean, uh, you know, like we got. <laughs> I, I gotta say yeah. that is, uh, it, but it's not. It's not nationally, but within a state. Yeah. Like in the USA, like like my state in South Carolina, it's like they have the curriculum and every single teacher has to have the same curriculum. And that's something I don't actually like that much. Um, you know yeah. what I mean? And again, it speaks to the fact that there are good ways of centralizing things and bad ways of doing it. Um, yeah. Especially in South Carolina, because another thing that another potential problem with centralization is just like bureaucracy and people doing things like to cook the books. Mm -hmm. That happens in, in America a lot where it's like they will make some policy and teachers will like do certain things just to make the numbers look better so that they'll get like better funding or they'll get, you know, yeah. more bonuses or whatever. Um, so, Oh yeah. Cause yeah, like that's, how much funding a school gets is based on how well they do on test scores in a lot of places. Yeah. In South Carolina, yeah. it was definitely that way. And it was like, it was so horrible because it would mean that if a school, if, a, if there's a school and the kids are not doing well in these standardized tests, centralization then they would uh, get less funding and it's just mm -hmm. like this downward spiral they just like go down the drain yeah. um so and then so then of course the schools would do things where they would be like doing all kinds of these shenanigans to like boost the apparent test scores and all this kind of stuff and um you know none of it helped the kids so that that's a that's a potential downside. Uh, you know bureaucracy is a whole thing we could get into i think one of the biggest problems mm -hmm. in vietnam is bureaucracy 